This morning at, at Christ Church, we do start a new series called Ecclesia on what it means for us at Christ Church to be the church. Our scripture today will be found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen, and greetings to you, Christ Church family and guests. Before we dive into the teaching here in a moment, I, I need to take a moment with you. Missy and I went to the zoo, the Memphis Zoo, this weekend. And while we were at the zoo, we were standing in front of the leopards. And this leopard was pacing back and forth, just a lot of energy, just back and forth. There's a young lady and her daughter standing next to us. The daughter asked the question, what's he doing, mom? And the mother answered, honey, he's trying to get out of Memphis. Now listen, I know this is not a time really to make light of a sobering era of history in our city. But I want to lovingly remind you, church family, people of God, we are not a people that run from problems. We are a people who pray into problems. We are a people that recognize that because, just as Grant led us in prayer, because Jesus is alive, there is hope for our city. No matter how dark it may appear in certain hours of history, we are a people that have the capacity to sow light and life relationally in this city. This is an hour where we step up and we seek to manifest more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is an hour where we seek to step up and build healthier bridges across racial lines in our city. This is an hour not where we fade or step back, but this is an hour let us all step up for the glory of God in any way that God may lead as we seek him for wisdom. Now, awkward transition. I need to mention two other things. Um, we are in process of disaffiliation as a church family, and uh, this process has already gone through our executive committee and our church council, and we have some processes that are still ahead of us. Next Sunday, we will have a town hall during the Sunday school hour, and then there's a free lunch after the 11 o'clock service uh, for open questions and answers. And the motive behind all of this is so that all of us are fully informed uh, regarding the steps that we are considering to take, are taking. And so I want to encourage you, if you have not read through the Q&A 
on the Christchurch homepage, the Joshua Committee's Q&A, I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to read the book, Are We Really Better Together? I encourage you to listen to the podcast that Grant Caldwell and I have put together along with our media team uh, so that you are fully informed and prepared for when we take this vote on October 30th. And then finally, as we go into this new series on the church, there will be a little bit of paradigm shift that we experience. Here's what I mean. We've just gone through a series on Psalm 23. We got the privilege or experienced the privilege from God's word of exploring the benefits of knowing the great shepherd. We shift today in this series and as we know the great shepherd, we now engage in our responsibility in being his people. So it'll feel a little different. So I wanna ask if we could take a moment and bow our heads and ask for God's help as we begin this phase of our journey together. Would you bow your head with me and quiet your heart before the Lord and let's call upon the name that's above all names. And so Lord, hear our cry. We call out to you, not only for our city, Lord. Yes, for the sake of Memphis, Lord. We pray for shalom and your peace. But God, we also pray for your church. Lord, we pray, cultivate in us the first love of Jesus. Cultivate in us that out of that love, uh, Lord, fruit and fruitful and life-giving patterns that bring life not only to who we are as individuals, but who we are collectively as your people, as the church, for the sake of this city and all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite preachers, and this may be true for many of you, is a, is a man named Tony Evans. And Evans shares the story of, of uh, churches being like embassies. Uh, you all, many of you have traveled to other nations of the earth, and you're aware if you lose your passport as a U.S. citizen, that you can enter a U.S. embassy, and they can help you in an hour where sometimes you could feel somewhat panicked when you know you've got a flight that's leaving in a matter of hours and you have to have proper documentation to get out of the country. You're aware that if you step off the soil in some country of the earth and into a U.S. embassy, the laws of that country no longer apply. However, as you step onto the grounds of the U.S. embassy, you are now under U.S. jurisdiction and you have a responsibility to abide by the laws of your home country. We're aware that the embassy does not represent the country in which it exists. The embassy represents another country altogether. And loved ones, there's a sense in which that's a good parallel for the church of Jesus Christ. That is, the church does not represent the country in which it exists. The church represents another country altogether. And as we referred to recently, just a few weeks ago, This is why the people of God, the church, we are empowered to pray a fairly radical prayer. Kingdom come, will of God be done on earth like it is in another country, like it is in another realm, like it is in heaven. Let what's up there come down here. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Make a note of that. We'll circle back to that in just a moment. But in the passage that was read this morning, Jesus declares this in Matthew 16, 18. I 
will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now, we all want to be a part of the church that Jesus is building, not something we're building. We want to be a part of what God in Christ is doing because really, ultimately, one of the great inferences of this passage is this, only Jesus can build his church. I'm mindful that a crowd is not a church. Just because you have a crowd, that doesn't mean you have a church. If we wanted to draw a crowd today, there's a great way. I mean, I know one way we could draw a crowd. We could put up signs on Poplar Avenue that simply say this, free craft beer, 11 o'clock, right here. (laughs) And you'll have a crowd. But a crowd is not a church. Just because you have a crowd, that doesn't mean you have a church. Only Jesus can build his church. Now, I'm a church planter. I know I'm not the only one in this sanctuary that that's true. And so Missy and I have had the honor of planting churches around the world, and I had the honor of planting a church here in North America. And I get asked this question every now and then, Pastor Paul, could you do it again? And one of my favorite ways to respond, just to encourage people to think deeply, is this. No, no, I couldn't, because I didn't do it the first time. Only Jesus can plant and establish his church. We're going to get into what that looks like in this series. So let's ask a couple of questions about this passage. First of all, why is Jesus referring to gates when he talks about the church? Well, in biblical times, elders, city leaders would meet at the gates of a city. And they, what, what they would do is they would gather, and it was kind of like a city hall, if you will. Elders, leaders, government officials would meet there to discuss how they would bear and bring legal weight upon the citizenry so that things were in order. And so the parallel here is when Jesus makes this statement, he's declaring that the weight of evil, no matter how dark the hour, will not overcome or prevail upon Jesus' church. The gates of hell, evil, will not overpower the church. Now, that's not just found in the word. Loved ones, that's found if we'll just stop and look at history. Think for a moment. When the church is established in Roman culture, Roman, the Roman government is hostile toward the church. There are people being martyred, and yet the church proliferates. 11 of the 12 disciples are martyred. John is exiled to Patmos to live alone, and yet the church goes forward for the glory of God. Evil did not triumph over the church. If you're a student of history, you're aware of the heavy oppression upon the church of Jesus Christ during the Soviet regime decades ago. And in the midst of severe oppression in the Soviet bloc, the church continued to thrive even though there were those who suffered greatly for their faith. Chinese Revolution, 1940s, there were about 900,000 to 1 million Christians in China. The government begins cracking down heavily upon the Christian church, imprisoning many, putting many to death. And information did not come out of China very well because of the crackdown of the government. 
A couple of decades ago, information begins coming out of China. And what do we find after the communist revolution? We find that the church has grown from roughly 900,000 to a million to over, or shall we say somewhere around 100 million believers. And again, evil did not overcome the church. And today, one of the most oppressive governments in the world is the nation, or shall we say the government of Iran. And yet, the fastest growing church in the world in this hour is in the nation of Iran. And it's mostly led by women. Evil has not overcome the church. The gates of hell have not overcome the church. And what we see in Jesus' words, we can point to anecdotally around us. So let's ask this question. What exactly is the church? Well, first, the church is not a building. That doesn't mean that buildings aren't important or don't have their place. The building and facilities are merely tools so that we may gather, magnify God together corporately and enhance discipleship and local and global missional expression. The word church actually comes from a Greek term. It's the word ekklesia, which is why we named this series ekklesia, which is the general term that refers to a gathering or an assembly of believers. It's also referred to, because of the, what's found in the original language, to called out ones, those that God has drawn to himself. The Greek word ekklesia, as this general term, refers to this gathering or assembly, called out ones, and this definition that I'm about to give would be a good operating definition for the church. Here it is. The church is an assembly of people called out of the world into an embassy which represents the kingdom of God on earth and is missional in expression. Now, let's pause. Here's something for us to be mindful of. The church is both inclusive and exclusive. The church is both inclusive and exclusive. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, what I mean by that is this, inclusive in the sense that all people are invited to repent of their sins and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not God's desire that anyone should perish, as the scripture says in Romans 10. But the church is also exclusive. Many will not repent of their sins and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Therefore, the church of Jesus Christ is also exclusive. Now, the church of Jesus Christ is not elite. That's not what we're saying by saying it's both inclusive and exclusive because those who are in the church have a servant's heart to serve others and to esteem others as better than themselves. But the church is both inclusive and exclusive. And so for the church of Jesus Christ, hear this loved ones, there is an inside and there's an outside. There's an inside and there's an outside. And that's not, tr that's not new. That was true in the Old Testament. That was true, in, that is certainly true in the New Testament. Now to illustrate this, let me share with you a story from my childhood. My stepfather, Jake, uh, I've shared this with a few of you, had a Cessna 310. It's a, a, a twin engine plane. And 
one of the things that he would do that he would actually be fined by the FAA for doing, and I just want to acknowledge that for the pilots in the room because your eyebrows are going to go up when I share this, is when I was growing up, we lived on what was called Lake Gunnersville, and we lived in, on an area of the lake where you had a view across the lake that was miles across in, in the Tennessee Valley. Well, he would take the Cessna 310 on blue sky days, and a lot of times you would hear him off in the distance, and you would realize he's about to come in like a World War II pilot and buzz the house. Now, when you're in high school, your friends think this is awesome. But you would hear him when he's a long way off because of the way sound travels over water. And so Jake would come in low, and I would, I, you would hear him. In fact, you would, you know, I can remember my high school buddies looking at me going, it's Jake. I'm going, yeah, I know. And they would run outside to watch him buzz the house. I remember one day, I'm just throwing this in for free. This has nothing to do with the message. And so I just asked for grace in this. There was a fisherman on the lake one day. He stood up in his aluminum boat and panicked. I watched him shift this way. At the, you know, you gotta remember, twin engine plane, 30 feet off the water. He shifts this way, he shifts this way, and his final shift is when in panic, he dove out of the boat. So anyway, pardon me. That doesn't help you, that doesn't edify you. I just ask for forgiveness for that. But when that Cessna 310 at full throttle would come 30 feet off the house, the whole house would tremble. And the Lord says, here's where I dwell. He who has a contrite heart and a humble spirit and trembles at my word. And what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to do a flyover of scripture that describes who you and I are as the church. The word that God uses, our inspired writers to use, is the word for you've been set apart. You're set apart from the culture. The word that I, the Lord inspired these writers to utilize is the word holy, which means something that is set apart. You're not like everybody else. So here's the flyover. The Old Testament counterpart called God's people a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. We are called to be saints, holy ones, Romans 1.7, 1 Corinthians 1.2. We are set apart as holy, 2 Timothy 2.21. We are chosen to be holy, Ephesians 1.4. We are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Colossians 3, 2. We are a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 5. We are a holy nation, 1 Peter 2, 9. We are a holy temple, 1 Corinthians 3, 17. You see over and over this consistent thread that we are called out ones. We are set apart. These are many of the images that we see of the church in the Bible, but there are more images that we see. We see the image that we are the body of Christ, Ephesians 1, 10. Ephesians 4.15, that we are the people of God, 2 Corinthians 6.16, Hebrews 8.10, that also we are the bride of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.2, Ephesians 5.32, Revelation 19.7, and Revelation 21.9. We see these threads over and over and over that we've been called out, we're different, we're unique. There's an inside, there's an outside. And the question for us is, is Christ and his church mildly important? Or is Christ and his church 
infinitely important. Because you see, many people, including people in the church, have been culturally conditioned to have a low view of church. And that usually happens when we're taking our cue from people rather than taking our cue from what Jesus has revealed and what God has revealed in the word. When I was called into ministry, I was a brand new Christian in my early 20s. One of my closest friends' dad was a high-powered lawyer. And we used to all go on vacations together, hang out together. But when I began expressing that I had come to faith in Christ and then about three months later shared with my best friend's dad that we were we were very close, that I was going to go into the ministry. I remember his reaction. He grew angry. Paul, why would you waste your life? When you could do this, you could do that. you're, You're this, you're that. You're not that. Why would you do that? Why would you waste your life in that way? And that was a man who was in church every Sunday, but what he said was a reflection of the reality. He had a low view. Christ in his church. Remember my grandmother, my brother and I loved her deeply I, with great affection and there's lots of, you'll hear grandmother's stories in the years to come. I apologize on the front end, but my, my grandmother had a wound and, and I won't get all into that right now, but I think out of her wound, one of the things she did is that she ran her senior pastor down for sport. It didn't matter who the senior pastor was. I remember thinking when God began calling me into vocational ministry, I remember thinking, I'm gonna have to put up with people like my grandmother. But she had a low view of Christ, a low view of his church, which is, that's why that came out symptomatically out of her heart. Some people simply have a superficial understanding of Christ and his church. Like, oh, I feel closer to God when I'm in the duck blind than I do at church. I feel closer to God when I'm fishing, when I'm in the outdoors. Now, loved ones, I'm one of those persons. I love being outdoors. I've got lots of memories in duck blinds and saltwater fishing, freshwater fishing. I love all that. And yeah, there are some times where I do feel close to God, but what's happened is we've allowed our personal experience to trump what Jesus and the scriptures say about the reality and the sacredness of his body and his bride, his church. The statistical data on church attendance, on surveys and focus group, get this, this is the latest data that was actually released before COVID-19, that some people consider themselves active in a church when they show up one Sunday out of four to six You know, I was asked to be a character witness a number of years ago in a court case. I was a member of the church I pastored. And I I remember saying to the gentleman, I said, now listen, you know I'm gonna tell the truth, but I'm also under oath. Oh, I know, I know. And when the opposing attorney approached the witness stand, she asked me one question, here it is. Pastor Lawler, could you tell us how often has this man been active or showed up on Sundays in the church you pastor? And I paused and I thought hard and I said, about one Sunday out of six. And she looked up and said, no more questions, your honor, because she knew that his character had been impugned by that answer. All of us in this room, most of you, you know what an oxymoron is, right? when you take two polar opposites and link them together, jumbo shrimp, okay? Government efficiency. (laughs) 
Here's another one. Online church. Now, give me a moment. Is this camera on? Which camera? Okay, I want to talk to you. Those of you that are home right now, if you're, if you're sick, you're in a nursing home, you know, maybe, or maybe you're, you've got immune deficiency, I want you to know you are loved. You are supported. You are prayed for. But if you're sitting at home and you're healthy and you're sitting there in your pajamas with a cup of coffee, you're missing the mark. This is not what God intended for you. Let, let me give not only you who are listening, but all who are gathered here a definition, a working definition of the word neglect. Here it is. A fail to care for properly, to give little attention, to respect to, to omit through indifference or carelessness. Now, I'm going to quote a scripture, if, but was it Shakespeare who said, don't neglect assembling yourselves together? Because we might be better off if it were Shakespeare, but, I, but if it were the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who inspired the writer of Hebrews to say this, we, we, we probably should pay attention. And let us not, Hebrews 10.25, neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that you see the day of his return drawing near. And loved ones, I want to lovingly remind you that church is an embodied presence of believers, an embodied gathering of Christians. It's showing up. And as we'll get to in the weeks to come, we will understand why that is so significant, not only for the glory of God, but for your development. John Wesley once said, as I've quoted, I think Wednesday night, there's no holiness but social holiness. And what Wesley is saying, what he's declaring, is that people do not grow as Christians in isolation. Sometimes, as a pastor, I will ask you things that may be challenging. And I want you to know, as you're getting to know me, that if it's not rooted in love for God and not rooted in love for you, then I'm off. But this question is rooted, that I'm about to ask you, is rooted in love for God, and it's rooted in love for you. Here it is. If other people follow your pattern, will Jesus' church be stronger or weaker? If other people follow your pattern, will Christ's church be stronger or weaker? Now, what I'm about to say does not mean that everything rises and falls on this one thing. But understand, this is a series and we'll get to other facets of what we're exploring and the reality of Jesus and his church in the days and weeks to come. But I, I do want to invite you to consider something very important that's at stake in our conversation this morning. Here it is. When you're not connected to a church, you're not active in the life of the church, you're limiting, severely limiting what you'll see God Almighty do. When you are connected to the church, you will see God do things that you will not see if you try to follow him individually. You're not designed to follow him as a lone ranger. So let's jump back to our scripture. Relax. Some of you are going, 
scripture. Wait a minute, was that the introduction? No, this is, this is the wrap-up. I just want to comfort you with those words, okay? But let's go back to our scripture. Jesus says, I will build my church. So let's look at the context of what he says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I want to invite you to pay attention to that. Because what's happening is Simon is expressing the confession that births a man or woman into the church. This is the door that he's putting his faith in the person of Jesus. Also, Simon is Jewish. You all understand that. And for a Jewish person to declare that you're the Christ, that's not a firecracker statement. That's a nuclear statement. In other words, he's declaring, Jesus, you're the one that's been predicted from Genesis to Malachi. You're the one that as we've had these sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple for the forgiveness of sin, Those types have all been pointing to you. You're the fulfillment of all that's been prophesied. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now, notice what happens next. Jesus says to him, there's a blessing on you. But then he goes on to express where the blessing comes from. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about that you need God to bring you to God? You can't just, you know what, I think I'm going to do that this afternoon. I mean, it, it takes more than that. You need God working in you to bring you to God. You say, Pastor, really? Well, the reason we say that is because Jesus said that. Jesus said nobody comes to the Son unless the Father draws them. And we see a parallel verse right here where Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't do this. You didn't just think your way to God, but my Father who is in heaven did this work, this work of revelation over your heart and life. I remind you, this is why or what John Wesley called prevenient grace, the grace that goes before, the work of God that's drawing you into salvation, into the person of Jesus Christ. And so let's keep rolling. He says, he says this, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This is a supernatural work of my father who is in heaven working in your heart. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, stop right there. So he gives him a new name, Petros, rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, here's a question. Here's a question. Some of us have been taught that, okay, because Pete, this happened, then Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, thousands of people come to Christ, that the church, uh, through apostolic succession, it's all built on Peter. And I know there are some people who ascribe to that, but I want to submit to you something deeper, richer, more life-giving is going on in this passage. Here's the question. What is it that made Peter a rock? Jesus. What made Peter a rock in Jesus? Peter put his faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. This is what transformed Peter's heart and life. And in the transformation, Peter became a rock. That revelation is the rock of Christ Jesus, loved ones. 
And the same revelation that's available to Peter or was available to Peter is available to everyone in this room. And out of that rock, when men and women are birthed into the kingdom, Jesus says there's now, there's now a greater power in you, believer, than anything outside of you. I will give you now, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because there's a greater power in you than is is outside of you. And now I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, this is not complicated. What does a key do? I I, I know we could ask the six-year-olds. It opens doors. And that's exactly what Jesus wants you to see that through the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, the surrender of your life, the, the rock of Christ Jesus taking up residence in you, now a new door has been opened in your life. The key turns. And as the key turns and you come into the kingdom through the person of Jesus, notice what happens here. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Remember what Jesus taught us to pray? Kingdom come, will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here, here's what happened. Here's what just happened. When I read the words, phrase, Whatever's bound on earth, bound in heaven. Whatever's loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. Some of us have heard this before, and here's what happens. One of three things. The first one is this, as I said last week. Here we go. I don't know what that meant. That's the first thing. Some of us are there. Here's the second thing. Some of us have heard that passage taught by some TV preachers or maybe certain circles of Christianity, and it just got weird and so therefore, when you read this, you're kind of like jaded. I, please, please don't get weird. And I want you to know I get that, and I get you. What Jesus means in this passage is actually a huge blessing. And what he's saying is that there, there are some things as Christians that we recognize we're to stay away from. We're to I don't stay bound up. I don't want to get involved in that. And so we go, okay, Lord, I want to, don't let me cross that boundary. And we keep them bound up. And what Jesus is declaring is that when you cry out to God, God, I need your grace. He's able to make his grace abound toward you. That he'll empower you, strengthen you to choose for him. Whatever's bound on earth is bound in heaven. But also notice what's loosed on earth. Heaven's power is loosed. For instance, when a church decides that they're going to help resource the reaching of the Fulani people, an unreached people group, that's on God's heart much more than it's on ours. The Lord looses hearts. Lord, I'm going to join you in what you're doing. I'm going to pray for the Fulani people. I'm going to resource the reaching of the Fulani. Or we're going to launch an inner city, one of the many inner city ministry expressions through a people called Christ Church, whatever the case may be. Are we align in intentional discipleship as a church family? You're loosing what God desires to do in and through us with a greater power in you than is outside of you that comes through the rock of Christ Jesus. Let me share a story with you really quick, okay? And I realize, what was it Chicago once said? Does anybody really know what time it is? (laughs) Just 
I just ask for grace. I, I realize some of you, you got to go, but let, just ask for some grace here. Let me share this with you real quick. We could give thousands of examples of this principle, what we've just witnessed. Let me give you one. When I was in my 30s, um, I'm I'm type A. I don't know whether that's something I'm admitting or confessing right now, but I'm type A. And I, I I let my drive get ahead of God. And that's a miserable place to be. Jesus said, I'll build my church. He doesn't need me. And I got ahead and I began operating in the flesh. And I, I'll, I'll share that story with you another time. But it humbled me because when, you, when you're in the flesh, particularly when you're trying to do ministry, it's a miserable place. And I got good and miserable. And I began to cry out to God. And long story short, I... God in his grace, I had an encounter with him. I was, already knew the Lord, but I grew, grew to understand more about the spirit-filled life. And out of that, I'm walking down the street one day in Huntsville, Alabama, and I'd just spoken with a pastor, and I saw another pastor walking down the street. But I noticed that when he made eye contact with the pastor I just spoke to, he jumped to the other side of the street. And what I learned is that they were enemies, And I felt God, just felt, sense the grief of the Holy Spirit. I was like, Lord, what do we do? I spent a year visiting with pastors all over the city and asked them if the following year they'd be willing to gather for three days and pray together. And and after a year, 40 to 50 pastors in Huntsville, Alabama gathered to pray. Now, when we begin to pray... It starts out kind of slow. You hear some great three-point sermons in prayer. But there's a point, there's a point where the transcendence of God begins to take place. And when you're in the manifest presence of God, you get humbled. And when you're humbled, you start seeing each other's heart. And we watch these two pastors forgive each other embrace each other. There were a lot of things like that that happened. A lot of things, loved ones, get the picture, got loosed because we turned the keys to pray, just to pray. On the last day of that prayer gathering, one of the pastors said, hey, could we pray? I'm noticing something in my church family that's very disturbing, and I want to ask if we could just take a bit of time to pray. Here it is. He says, I'm finding that there are people in my church that have a secret cocaine addiction. This was in the 90s. You see, Huntsville, Alabama is a city where there's a lot of first-generational wealth, a lot of software engineers that have developed things that suddenly they become multimillionaires. And what was happening in those, a lot of those lives and those families with first-generational wealth, they didn't handle it well. And another pastor said, I'm seeing the same thing in my church. And then I spoke up and said, uh, I, I, it grieves me to say, but I actually am navigate, navigating this as well. And so we went into a prayer time praying for the cocaine traffic in our city and for the addiction to cocaine in the city of Huntsville. And, and church, as we began to pray, there was a sense in which as the Holy Spirit 
anointed this prayer time. That room that we prayed in, it felt like a birthing room. You knew God was doing something. You didn't know what, but you just sensed God's presence so richly. You knew God's doing something. You didn't know what it didn't know what it was, but you just knew. One week later, newspaper headline, and I look, I tried to find it so I could put it on the screen, but it's in one of our moving boxes somewhere. Headline in the paper, major cocaine kingpin arrested, shutting down cocaine traffic in the region. Here's what happened. The Huntsville police went to a door to serve papers for a person who needed to appear in court. They accidentally went to the wrong door. And when they went to the wrong door, the evidence was sitting out in the open and they arrested this kingpin. Within a matter of weeks and months, glory to God, amen, amen. I don't want to shut that down, amen. Within a matter of weeks and months, as we continue to pray, many of the people that we as pastors love and care for began to take the next right steps to break the cycles of addiction. Now, why is Pastor Paul sharing this story with you? Because I want to remind you this morning, God loves our city. He loves Memphis. He bled and died for Memphis. He bled and died so that his church would loose keys or use keys and loose what needs to be loosed by sowing into the city, not running in an hour like this, but sowing into the city the love of God through Jesus Christ, sowing into the city the gospel of Christ, sowing into the city the mercy of Christ, sowing into the city the fruit of the Spirit when you call the person at the cash register by name and ask them how they're doing, to love the city when you tip well at the restaurant because you recognize you're not just tipping them for service, but you're bringing witness to the grace of Christ by honoring your waiter or your waitress. Loved ones, here's what I want to invite us to do. I know it's after 12. Some of you got to go, and I get that. But as we close today, I, I want to ask if you would do this. If you would come to an altar, and let's, as the song, closing song is prayed, let's pray for our city. Let's turn keys. I, I'm, 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 there are practical things we need to do too, but let's pray for the city that Jesus loves as he loves all cities, but he loves the people of this city. And that's the invitation this morning. If you don't know Christ, I invite you, surrender to him. Okay? He loves you. He bled and died for you. He's worthy of your surrender. But let's come and let's pray together for our city. Would you stand this morning? Lord, we thank you that you're here and pray that as some of us come and we kneel in this altar area, you said, draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. And so, God, we're, we're seeking to draw near out of love for you and, God, out of love for this region. And hear our prayers as we come, as we kneel. Just hear our prayers, God. Let it be sweet incense before your throne.